politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here to service those of you yearning to fight for life, liberty, property, and all that matters. It is Thursday. It is February. My gosh, where is the year gone? It's like it was already the new year, and now it's February 10th. And folks, your paycheck has just gone down 7.5%. That's right. When inflation goes up 7.5%, it has gone down. Remember, that was done, brought to you by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, who passed those trillion-dollar bills that underwrote the lockdown, that underwrote COVID fascism, and it's why we are where we are today. Now, we have a special show ahead for you today, a very special show dealing with the most vexing issue, which is where did COVID come from and why it still matters. It still matters. At a time when both Democrats and Republicans want to run away from it, we don't want to run away from it. We need to know how this came about, who was responsible, what else are they cooking up, and what we need to do about it. Perhaps also if we knew more about the creation of it, we would have a better idea of how to treat it better. Short COVID, long COVID, spike, spike, you know, protein injury from the shots. You know, the the, the funny thing is like Democrats, oh, we're done with COVID. COVID's still circulating. It's not a certainty that it's going to end. This is not natural. Who knows what's next? We need, we, need, we need all those issues we've been talking about. We need policies in place to protect people, heal them, and hold the people accountable who have brought this upon us. So we're going to have a very special whistleblower coming up soon. Now, if we don't succeed, we're going to have to move somewhere else. Believe it or not, a lot of people are thinking about buying property in Panama. I'd like you guys to check out our sponsor, buypanamanow.com slash conservative. You get 100% free the complete Invest and Retire in Panama series, including the American's Guide to Living and Retiring in Panama, along with four free videos. Panama's a high-income nation. It really is. They use the U.S. dollar, except at a time like today, your money is actually worth 10 times more than it is in the United States. So look, if we're going to become like Venezuela in terms of the monetary system and like North Korea in terms of rights. I'm not kidding you. You might want to check it out. BuyPanamaNow.com. See what it's like, uh, you know, the culture there, um, and how to pull it off economically. Again, that's BuyPanamaNow.com slash conservative. So, folks, before we bring on our special guest, I just wanted to touch on a couple of issues. You know, one is Moderna tweeted out yesterday that they're collaborating with AstraZeneca on a new mRNA therapeutic for cardiovascular disease. So they stick mRNA in us to create spikes and inflame our um, vascular system, and now they're like, hey, we got an mRNA therapeutic. Again, this is going to continue happening. We need to know how this started, and we need to know how to deal with it. We need legislation designed in the states to deal with this. Okay? It's that simple. We need legislation in every state to properly give people that informed consent. Otherwise, we're going to have we're going to be like lab rats. Okay? If they made 
abortions free in the state. The federal government had a new program to distribute abortion centers. Would we be like, well, it's not mandated, so I'm fine? No, that's not pro-life. Okay, that's not pro-life. So at this point, this is the ultimate pro-life position that we need to block any therapeutic that does not have proper liability or proper data information. So that's what that, but I, I will tell you the state legislatures have zero interest in doing this. I was talking with a couple of friends of mine, a couple of new people I've met as conservatives in red state legislatures. Leadership is, wants to walk the heck away from this issue and never turn back. And that's a big problem. You know, I'm going to have a piece out tomorrow. South Carolina, the biggest hospital system, is denying transplants to those that didn't get the shots. By the way, it's unbelievable. They say they need randomized controlled trials to approve ivermectin, even though it's already approved, right? It already established a safety profile. And we, we do have RCTs too, and they just don't like them. But at the same time, they'll take an experimental drug, uh, therapeutic that's already turned out to be dangerous as hell, that already has been proven to never stimulate immunity, and somehow that's safe to put in organ transplant patients or people waiting for an organ. Again, it's one rule of engagement. They win, we lose. I just, if nothing else, I wanted to get to one story today just to um, talk about this. You know, the masking. They all said, oh, it's, it, it's a cost-free measure. It doesn't do anything. I want to give over a vivid example of what it does to children. And I'm going to read to you a note that my sister sent me. She's a speech and language pathologist in, in Maryland. She worked in the public schools for many years. She used to work with um, older people like stroke victims and, and then for most of her career went on to young kids. And if you take a look at what's going on, she, so she gave me the following quote, and by the way, it's gotten well over a million impressions on Twitter, so clearly it resonates with people because it's, it's real. You know, my sister is conservative, but she's not into politics that much, and this is real. She was very frustrated at work today, yesterday, and she sent me this. The speech issues I see with three- and four-year-olds that have been masked, I've never seen before in 22 years. So much low muscle tone drooling, unusual articulation errors, on early developing sounds. The kid's whole mouth area was chapped. She's talking about one of the people she saw today. From drool accumulated around the mask. She can't achieve lip closure for the B, M, and P sounds because her lips are so chapped. Even if the kids are not masked, all of the adults are masked, right? And the children can't see the oral motor movements made by the adults. They don't know how to produce a B sound. The lips have to come together. One child didn't today didn't realize that you have to put your tongue behind your teeth to pr produce a T sound. This is a typically developing child in all other areas. These types of articulation errors are usually seen with children who have neurological impairments or syndromes uh, with associated speech and language impairments. I've never had so many refer referrals in my life for young, healthy children with such severe articulation impairments. And she went on to tell me, like, her caseload is usually 18 a day. Now it's 30. They don't have enough speech therapists. 
And her point was, like in every profession that intersects with damage from COVID fascism, the mask, the shots, there's complete censorship. No one's allowed to mention anything. No one's allowed to talk about it. So therefore, we're not even going to get ahead of the issue, even after the damage is done. You know, she can't be quoted anywhere directly with her name. You know, no one will publish anything. This is the problem. One of the, one of our listeners sent me a, a note, uh, Ilya. If you look at California law, Education Code Article 5.2, Restraint and Seclusion, 49005.8A4, use of a behavioral restraint technique that restricts breathing, including but not limited to using a pillow, blanket, carpet, mat, or other item to cover a pupil's face is illegal. It's directly illegal what they're doing in these states. But it took two years to even get Republicans on board. How did they not jump the first second? I was like, what? Did, do, do you remember there was this woman, and I can't remember her name. She's a satirist. She uh, puts out comedy videos, and she made a comedy. This was, let's say, July 2020. So the schools were closed. They weren't even open. But in September, they were opening them in a lot of places. But, you know, they were talking about masking. So she put out a parody of what it would look like. And we all thought it was a joke. Two weeks later, that parody became reality. And when we got that news in our private school, I was like, I didn't bat an eyelash. I took my kids out. And I thought everyone would have followed me. I was the only one that took my kids out. People just went along with that. I couldn't believe it. So the fact that people were willing to go along with this so quickly told the bad guys that, look, you know, you can get this for free. You can totally get this for free without any fight. Okay, now they're getting antsy. They'll relinquish it. But if you have a new emergency, are you really confident that any of these governors will stand up? DeSantis is the only one who has articulated a case against the premise of the mask. Most of these other Republican governors are like, yeah, it's time to move on. You know, we don't need it anymore. The virus is over. Okay, well, what if you have a new thing? You know, all, they all say it worked for the flu, even though it didn't, of course. They'll bring it back. So these are just things to keep in mind, and I want to continue this discussion tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to have Senator Ron Johnson on the program. I'll be out one day early next week. Another one I'm going to pre-tape because I'm going on a little bit of a mini vacation with the, the kids are off of school, have an odd winter break in the middle of February, so we've got to do something with them. But anyway, um, our interview is sponsored today by ExpressVPN. Okay, when did we decide to stop upholding free speech as a basic right? Well, we're playing into the hands of big tech companies and social media sites by allowing them to monitor, detect everything we do, and then sell, track and sell our searches, video histories, everything. That's how they make their money. When I put on ExpressVPN app on my computer, I make everything anonymous. Consider it a computer mask, except a mask that actually works. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of my network to protect me from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. Um, ExpressVPN is rated number one by Business Insider in terms of uh, VPNs. Stop allowing big tech to revoke our free rights to free our rights to freedom of speech. Why not revoke their right to your data instead? Secure your internet with the VPN I trust. That's ExpressVPN.com/slash-conservative. 
E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash conservative to get extra three months free with my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash conservative. Now, I don't want you guys to just listen to me today and me blabber on, rant as I always do. I know you're coming today for today's episode for our special guest. What is behind COVID? Who is behind it? And why it still matters? That is still the fundamental question. It matters so much. And at a time like this, we cannot allow the politicians in both parties to run away from the issue. You wanted COVID. You wanted a great reset. You wanted to change our lives for it. Well, now we're going to have a long-form discussion over how it came about, who is responsible, so that we could prevent this from ever happening again. And like I said, you know, there's also clinical uh, angles to this as well. You know, we need to know exactly the pathophysiology and, you know, other things it does. And I think the people involved in it, if they would come clean, they could probably help a lot in the treatment of it as well. So with us today to discuss this and more is the best type of guest because it's someone who was there at the scene of the crime. It's a whistleblower, Dr. Andrew Huff, uh, who has now reached out to numerous senators, has written letters to them detailing his experience um, for a short period of time, but a critical period of time. He was VP of Data and Technology at EcoHealth Alliance, the company at the center of this gain-of-function research that is believed to be responsible for the spike binding to the ACE2 that created this pathogen and this disease. Um, Just a little bit about Dr. Huff. He previously served in the Minnesota National Guard as an infantryman. He served uh, some time in Iraq. Uh, He got his PhD from University of Minnesota in environmental health science, uh, specializing in emerging infectious diseases. In 2016, Dr. Huff was appointed as a tenure-track professor at Michigan State University, where he's been working on research uh, specializing in zoonotic epidemi- epidemiology and antimicrobial resistance, taught courses in human medicine and animal medicine as well, dealing with clinical trials. So he's got a real broad background from the military, the private sector, science, and certainly all the relevant sciences that you need to discuss for this virus. And with us is none other than the man himself, Dr. Hoff, thanks so much for coming forward, and thanks so much for joining CR Podcast today. Well, Daniel, uh, it's nice to, to meet you and finally speak with you. I'm so pleased to be here today. Well, we we were waiting for someone like you for a long time because we figured there had to be people involved in this research. So could you just, before you go through the timeline of kind of putting together a model for our public, I know you do a lot of modeling for a living, of, of how you think this virus came about, uh, what was your uh, interaction with with Peter Daszak, who, who is the head of, of uh, um, EcoHealth Alliance? What sort of work did you do? This was in 2016. Is that correct? Well, actually, I was hired at EcoHealth Alliance in October of 2014, mm. and I was hired as a senior scientist. And when I interviewed um, at EcoHealth Alliance, I thought it was one of the most amazing organizations um, doing this type of infectious disease research. At the time, 
Um, it looked like it had a conservation focused angle on protecting wildlife to protect human health. And um, I've been an avid hunter and outdoorsman my whole whole life. I actually live in a remote area in the woods now. I'm an outdoorsman. And, I, you know, this was a mission I could really get behind because, it, you know, that as a stated mission has a lot of scientific uh, validity to it. If we can protect nature and the, and the environment, we can actually pre- pre- uh, prevent some infectious diseases from emerging. So, um, I was really excited about it. I was actually excited to move to uh, New York City. I had always wanted to live there. I found Dr. Gaffney very engaging. I really liked all the senior staff there. And uh, my perceptions changed over time, obviously, but um, I was really excited to take this position. Uh, my duties and responsibilities initially, um, so it's sort of funny when you interview for a position, you don't really know um, what you'll be doing until you get the job. You might have an idea. Uh, after I came on, um, I learned that it was sort of my job to turn around a failing department. So my predecessor had sort of left bad terms, and I, I can understand why now, actually. And, uh, you know, they're at risk of losing federal funding. Uh, their contracts are expiring. So it was my job to come in and turn this team around and then to um, hopefully bring more money into the organization and publish, you know, publish our work and uh, make a name for ourselves. So you were eventually promoted to VP of data and technology. Um, When was the first time you came across what you saw as gain of function research on coronaviruses? Talk about what was the motivation? Where did this come from? And and, and when did you start to become alarmed about the activities of uh, EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak in particular? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I think there's a little bit of a necessary backstory uh, to get to that point. So uh, going back to when I was a PhD student at the, at the University of Minnesota, I actually had a, an elective course. Well, actually, not elective, but um, a major course within my field with Dr. Michael Osterholm. And he teaches an excellent course on policy related to infectious diseases. And uh, back in 2012, 2011, there was a lot of uh, hot debate going around or uh, going on related to gain of function um, with highly pathogenic avian influenza. There's two laboratories in the world that were doing a lot of that work. And that's when a lot of the the definitions were established for gain of function and DERC uh, dual use research of concern. Um, I actually wrote a paper and I can post it to Twitter if anybody wants to see it or maybe already did. But uh, I've been opposed to it uh, since I was a PhD student once I really learned uh, what it was. And that's sort of based on my national security experience uh, leading up to that point, which happened before um, I was a PhD student. And my take out is this, um, you can't have a dual definition where something can be used um, peacefully and then also be used as a weapon and then treat it in the laboratory or in the environment that you're working in as peaceful. Because if it can be used as a, as a weapon, you have to have the proper risk mitigation and risk analysis um, approaches in place. Otherwise, something bad's likely to happen because, you know, you can give uh, some biotechnology to a person. And then you, know, you can say that, say that it's a gain of function process or agent that you're working with or a method. Well, that person might hand it off to somebody else, or maybe that person goes rogue at some point. And then it's like that. Guess what? You have the right risk mitigation uh, procedures in place. So, how that ties into EcoHealth Alliance, um, I became aware of that work um, in probably 2015, uh, about the time that. Uh, I was promoted. So I was promoted in, excuse me, uh, June of 2015. And uh, probably, you know, sometime when I had the title senior, excuse me, senior scientist, um, 
leading up to that, so maybe in early 2015, as he got promoted, I started seeing the proposals for review because I was the only epidemiologist um, at my level uh, working at the time. There was actually another scientist. Uh, she was pre a pretty good epidemiologist. But the way this process works in a collaborative research environment, they hand the proposals around to all the scientists, the PhD level scientists. And if you have some really good master's level scientists or technicians, everyone provides feedback on those proposals because that's, that's critical to being successful. So I started seeing these things uh, in 2015. And, and you had concerns, obviously it could become a bioweapon in any way, gain of function doesn't seem to work that well. Um, because you know a lab is not the real world, so you were always against that. So I wanna I wanna pick up where we left, and I uh, just ask you to get a little bit closer to your phone so you get a better connection. As you do that, we're just going to uh, promote our next sponsor, which is very apropos to uh, with all this gain of function research going on, guys. You got to take your own health in your own hands. Just before getting on there, actually, I did take my own Z stack. That is a specially formulated immune-boosting supplement, zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, and D, formulated by Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, uh, the world-renowned doctor that um, really was, was very early on in treating people for COVID with a large degree of success. Had a lot of people do done what he did, we would be at a different point. Z-Stack is GMP certified, made right here in the U.S. Again, go to zstacklife.com slash Daniel and enter promo code Daniel to get a uh, small discount on your first order. That's zstacklife.com slash Daniel, promo code Daniel. This is part of our gain-of-function research, getting ahead of their bioweapons so we know how to treat it. So, so Dr. Hoff, picking up from there, um, at what point did you realize that this was shady, this research they were doing on coronavirus, spike protein binding, um, or is this done very often and it didn't look shady? Well, that's a good question. And I think, I think I have to put that into context first. So when I worked at EcoHealth Alliance, I became, became aware of a, a number of shady things going on. And when you start to see one shady thing going on, um, you think that there's more shady things going on. Um, I didn't necessarily pr pr particularly think at the time that the gain of function work was shady, but I, I was vocally opposed to it. I, I do uh, accurately recall sitting in an executive planning meeting uh, with all the other vice presidents and, and Dr. Daszak and being vocally opposed to gain-of-function research. You know, as scientists, we openly debate uh, these kinds of positions, and, and that's important, uh, and it's, it's okay to disagree. But I wanted to make it clear that I was against uh, gain-of-function work and DERK research, especially with related to the work that we're doing in China, uh, for numerous obvious reasons. Uh, from my previous experience, so as a scientist at uh, Sandia National Laboratories, <clears throat> where I worked on the classified side of bioweapons, biowarfare, protecting the food system and critical, critical infrastructures. And uh, going back even further into my military history, it, it's well known that you know China does not play play nice with us. And it's well known, I think, to everyone that the, the Chinese have been stealing our technology for years. So I wanted to raise the point that I was against this, this work and uh, in China specifically, and also that, um, you know, we, if we were going to do the work, we'd have to have the proper risk mitigations uh, in place. And we can come back to, to that point as well. But we went around the table, um, we discussed it, all the other executives sort of weighed in on it. And um, there were three people that were strongly supportive of it, a person who was neutral, and I was, I was opposed. So Dr. Dask made his ruling, 
and we moved on to the next country for discussion. So, and that that was the decision. Again, this was you're talking about, a, you know, six over six and a half years ago. Um, could you construct the timeline for us when you believe that this virus was created? Who was behind it? How does Ralph Barrick from UNC Chapel Hill tie into this? What is your best estimation um, from everything you've seen? Who is responsible and when it was created? Well, there's a number of, of parties responsible, and that that's really confusing and complex when you look at it. Because uh, between uh, the Wuhan Institute of uh, Virology and then also Dr. Ralph Barrick's laboratory, both are working on developing new methods and new models to make this type type of gain of function research uh, possible. So it's not only working on the the gene editing of the agent itself, you actually have to have animal models to make something more human transmissible. And from the documents that, you know, I have in my possession or that I've read, it does look like uh, it began somewhere uh, uh, prior to uh, 2000, at least nine or eight. But uh, if you then look at what's publicly available that you can get from peer-reviewed publications, um, the gain-of-function work at Dr. Ralph Barrett's laboratory uh, related to SARS or SARS-CoV-2 goes back all the way to 2003. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a long time. They were working on it long before their request um, that they submitted for the research that has been revealed in 2018. Clearly, they were working on it before because you were at those meetings several years <clears throat> prior so you believe they already had um the spike protein gain of function research before they submitted the application yeah that's, that's a great question so here's an interesting uh, fact that everyone in your audience should be well aware of the best scientists in the world we typically and maybe i'm not the best so maybe i shouldn't say say we but uh what happens is, is you tend to work and do the research for a proposal before you submit it. There are really strict funding requirements from most federal uh, government agencies where you have to have preliminary data, for example. Well, you can't have the preliminary data to receive the funding unless you're working ahead. Another thing that's important to note is that uh, from most of these U.S. government agencies and to the reviewers that are reviewing your proposals, uh, you also have to prove, uh, prove that you have a strong working actual relationship with your partners, in this case, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So even outside of EcoHealth, this is happening all over academia. You work ahead, regardless of not whether or not you get the funding, then you submit the proposal, and then you hope to get the funding. And guess what? If you don't get the funding, you keep doing the work anyways because you're going to resubmit that proposal somewhere else. And you keep doing that until you get the money. Now, while I worked at EcoHealth, it was no different there. We always worked ahead of the funding. So if you put that in the context with the DARPA diffuse proposal, you could see how that could then lead to an accidental or intentional release of the agent. So, but I'm trying to figure out the timeline. So they're clearly working on it for years before they submitted that, which makes sense. Um, and that was likely illegal. I mean, based on, on the law passed by Congress, they submitted and they don't, it's not accepted. What happened between that time and, I guess, let's call it September, August, September 2019, when we think the virus uh, was initially leaked in Wuhan? 
I'm not I'm not sure they understood your question correctly. So so yeah, what I'm trying to figure out is we know they had clearly had this research, like you said, not hey, we'd like to embark on this. No, you're saying they actually had the research from before the submission. So if we think that the virus came from that research, what happened during that time from their submission to when it was actually released, or is that still a black hole? Well, I think that's a black hole, but it's safe to say that the research was probably happening. And the way that that happens is, I mean, you typically, you receive, so when you're at an organization like EcoHealth Alliance, or if you're running a profitable laboratory in an academic institution, you have money coming from multiple different sources. So what you try to do is you leverage the resources across all these different projects to keep your, your laboratory operating at full capacity at all times. You want to keep people employed. You want to keep doing the work. You want to keep publishing. That's how it works. So it's not inconceivable that you would just be leveraging your other projects to keep that work going while you're waiting for the funding to actually arrive. Got it. Okay. So what are, what was the motivation behind this and what describe what you're alleging and why you're coming forward and what you're concerned about? Um, Here's the thing. Most people don't care about this story. And the reason they don't care is because to them, whether it came out of a bat cave naturally or whether it came out of a Chinese lab is irrelevant because the Chinese are evil and we have no way of controlling them and they do what they do. But what what I'm assuming the reason why you're coming forward is that it's not so much a matter of the location of where it took place. That's part of it. It was in you know Wuhan. But it's the people and entities supporting this and behind it. So your concern is that the government is involved in this research. Um, so talk about your issues with Peter Daszak, your conversations with him um, in terms of his motivation, your concerns about who he is and how this gets back to what either NIH or DARPA or other other uh, agencies within the, the Department of Defense. Well, that was a lot of questions all at, at once, and I'll try to break yeah, it Yeah, so take as much time I, as you need. Okay. Well, um, over time, you know, I sort of, sort of discovered that Peter Daszak is a pathological liar and a sociopath. Um, that that starry picture that I had of Equal Health Alliance uh, sort of quickly fades once I get promoted to vice president because I get to see uh, what is going on at the organization. Uh, I start discovering financial fraud when one of my research assistants comes to me and uh, she tells me that the finance department is asking her to start moving um, reimbursable expenses and travel expenses across different contracts and cost centers, which is technically illegal. Um, And then over time, I start seeing more and more of that because I become aware of it. Um, And that's that's troubling. Uh, so you you can see who the CFO reports to that's, that's Dr. Dasik. So immediately I wonder, I'm like, why are we playing this weird, this weird money shuffling game? Um, you know, it's, it's not the biggest legal infraction in the world, but it's serious enough and I'm ethical and a moral person. And uh, I don't like to conduct business that way. Um, so the other thing that I observed too, is that, uh, with this big predict program that we had, um, nothing is, is adding up. So uh, once I'm promoted to vice president, I, I'm asked to be put onto the PREDICT program. And the, the, the stated mission of the PREDICT, PREDICT program is something to the effect of we're trying to um, identify new viruses globally so we can predict and prevent emerging infectious diseases. 
Well, once I got onto the, the, the project and I started looking at what we were doing, it didn't really make sense scientifically. And that's because uh, it seemed that we were only hunting primarily for, for different types of coronaviruses globally. And we weren't collecting the right types of data that would, you would need in addition to those viral samples. Um, and we weren't applying the right types of methods to actually predict or forecast uh, which diseases would emerge. And I stayed uh, pretty quiet about that because I realized that this was our big source of funding. Um, I'm newly promoted. I don't want to rock the boat. Well, so then to go along with that, uh, there's you know another number of other weird things that sort of take place. So I quickly, uh, once I'm brought onto the uh, PREDICT program, I'm sitting in all the executive planning meetings, trying to get up to speed as fast as I can. And the U.S. State Department, USAID, and the mission, so the embassies globally that are involved with us, are heavily micromanaging, micromanaging the research, who we're working with, where we're collecting data. It's very strange. And it, it's so strange to, to make the comparison. So typically, when you apply for federally funded research and development uh, dollars, you submit your grant application. It goes in. It gets reviewed by either the agency or the reviewers, which may be other scientists. You get an award notice. And then they send you the check, so to speak. Or you might bill, uh, be reimbursed a bill against a contract, something to that effect. And then you submit typically either monthly, quarter, quarterly, or annual reports. And you don't have too much interaction with the program manager or the people involved. This was completely different. I mean, every person from the, from the State Department, the missions, and uh, USAID was involved with this all the time. Uh, phone calls. Uh, continuously emails. I mean, it was maddening. And I guess I really didn't know that I was getting into, uh, but it was heavily micromanaged and that was really suspect. That's interesting. So it's heavily managed. Didn't look like the typical, you know, virus research you would do. Looks like they were very, very keen on this. They're very interested. Do you think they were interested because they thought it was dangerous? Well, so then, you know, there's, there's another important point here too. So in this research, if, if you really wanted to find out which infectious diseases were going to be a threat to humanity, you'd want to look at the 26 uh, different families or classes of viruses uh, that exist. And, and not all of those are necessarily relevant to, to uh, human concern, they say, but you'd want to make comparisons then between these different viruses to see which ones had the most pandemic potential but we were only hunting for coronaviruses. And I shouldn't say only, but mostly. And that that was that was just strange, so strange. It's funny, because retrospectively, you know, this went over my head. I never studied this, but now that I'm going back from Bill Gates and all these people, they were obsessed with coronaviruses. And it's just, it just bizarre. Um, I, it, it made no sense. And this was going on for, for quite some time. I want to take a little bit of a detour before we come back to this and the concern of a CIA link and a, you know, a military link or DOD at least. Um, do you think there's a possibility that SARS-1 was tampered with? I mean, th there's always, always that possibility, I guess, but I haven't seen any, any evidence to suggest that. Okay, so it's more the fact that you had SARS-1 spiked interest in this research. Oh, SARS, well, let's look at coronaviruses. 
Um, yeah, yeah, it, Daniel, it could have been the, the catalyst to actually make this um, this this type of research appealing or more impactful or impactful to a person's emotional emotions to sort of sell the research to the public. That that's definitely a possibility. So now you could obviously have a situation where, okay, so you have one guy who works for an NGO, but it's kind of tied to the government, very influential um, in conducting this research. And, you know, whoopsies, he worked with the wrong people and China releases it. So it's, it's, it's a bad actor. What about Peter Daszak concerns you in a way that you believe this implicates something a lot wider than just one private citizen working for a non-governmental agency. What's your concern about government and who are the rotten apples? Well, that is, that's a broad question. I think actually in the whole COVID origin story, there's, there's many uh, rotten apples, so to speak. And I, every day that goes by, there's more whistleblowers coming forward. There's more uh, evidence coming out to support my claim, um, both related to vaccine development uh, response and the origin story. Now, with uh, Dr. Dasik, um, you know, there's a couple of interesting things that happened. So while I work at EcoHealth Alliance, I'm asked to draft, draft an ARPA report in uh, October of 2015. And why that, excuse me, August of 2015. And why that's so weird is that, so I sat in all the financial planning meetings. We weren't receiving any uh, money from my ARPA. And for your audience, that's the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Agency Typically, uh, they fund advanced technology to collect information or intelligence or surveillance. Okay, so they collect surveillance, and you. So you had a proposal. So talk a little bit about this proposal. Well, it wasn't a proposal; it was a report. So I actually had to generate a report on the things that I was working on, and I had to submit, but there was no funding on the books from this agency. So that was the first sort of strange thing that happened. So uh, Dr. Dasik came to me and asked me to draft this report, and I'm to send it to IARPA, but I have no clue why I'm submitting this report. Okay, so you had no clue what it was about. Um, then just d- describe you know, your final conversations with him, how you left the organization, and then why you're concerned that he might be a government agent. Yeah, so uh, so I'm, I'm trying to do this in chronological order for your, okay. your audience. So yeah, take the, your time. Yeah, the next yeah. So the next thing that that happened was that around the holidays in late December of 2015, I was leaving work, and it was the strangest thing ever. So Peter and I were closing down uh, the office. It was probably like nine nine thirty at night, maybe even ten. Uh, we'd both been working on grant proposals and reports and all these things that <laughs> that you get to do when you're in management, fun stuff. And as we're walking out the door and we're walking up the, the vestibule uh, on 34th Street in New York City, uh, Peter says, hey, Andrew, do you have a minute? I have a question. And I said, yeah, sure, Peter, what's your question? Well, someone from the CIA contacted me. And do you think if it's a good idea, do you think it's a good idea if I work with them? And I was shocked <laughs> that this man had just asked me that. So I had a top secret clearance or a DOEQ clearance when I worked at Sandia National Laboratories. I had a secret uh, clearance when I was in the military. Uh, when you're talking about the CIA, you typically do not do this outside what's called a, a secure compartmental information facility to somebody who hasn't been read into the program. That's a, sort of a jargon term in, in the security intelligence world it, with a person that you don't know that's been cleared actually having the clearance. And to my knowledge, he didn't have a clearance. And actually, my clearance was inactive. And 
you know, so, you know, I'm having this weird sort of panic moment. So I respond back and I say, Peter, it never hurts to talk to him. There could be money in it. So, you know, at, at that point in time, you know, we sort of, he sort of agrees and we get back into the elevator. We go down, I actually walk him back past his car, uh, back up to my old house on 44th street in uh, New York city. So over the next, uh, six weeks, actually, he gives me updates on three different occasions between meetings in the break area, basically saying that uh, the CIA is interested in the people that we're working with, the places we're working, the data that we're collecting. And then after this period of time, he stops um, updating me on the program or whatever's going on, I should say. And this was a long time ago. This is 2015. So he stops updating you. So let's kind of bring this to a punchline the here and now after having gone through the last two years it was released presumably sometime in 2019 by the chinese um what involvement our government had in terms of releasing it is unclear but um it does seem like there was definitely involvement on the research and development side so what do you think based on everything we've seen since then and your experience in retrospect at the time with Dazic, what do you think happened and who do you think is involved? Well, that's a, that's a very broad question. And maybe you asked it that way intentionally to see um, how much material I would grasp at. Um, so I, I think the, no, the, in other the words, I'm not really sure what you're alleging. I'm not, I'm, I'm having a difficult time why you're coming forward. So your concern is what, that Peter Dazic is a CIA agent I'm, I'm, oh, I'm really okay. just trying to figure. I'm just trying to figure out for our audience. We're we're half an hour in today, and I'm trying to figure out what is you're coming forward as a whistleblower. We need whistleblowers. We need to get to the bottom of who is behind this, um, where it comes from, how much else there is out there internationally. Um, so I'm assuming that's why you're coming forward. You're writing letters to senators. Hey, I got information. Um, so so what is the concern in the here and now where we stand? Yeah, so I can get to that because we're we're actually running short on time, and man, uh, time flies by. Yeah. So uh, come twenty come twenty nineteen, um, I become aware of COVID uh, in mid December. I have two two contacts in the region. Uh, one is um, an epidemiologist. The other one I, I know from a professional forum, and you know they tell me something weird is going on in Wuhan. I know that Equal Health has been doing uh, work in Wuhan from my previous work at Equal Health Alliance. And, you know, to my, my knowledge or expectation, I, I thought that they were still doing the work there. So um, I go pull plume dispersion model data uh, for Wuhan, China, and it looks like the crematoriums are operating in overdrive. So I'm comparing this to everything that the government's telling us, and nothing makes sense. And it really looks like there's something serious going on in Wuhan. So over the next two years, uh, coming up to today, I started going through all my different documents, records that I have. I discover an Inkletel pitch deck from Dr. Dazic. He had given it to me to post some of the slides out of it for a presentation. And he also wanted me to put slides into the presentation so he could pitch that to Incutel. So Incutel is a uh, venture capital firm, which is backed by the intelligence community. So the idea is that you pitch to this company, if you get money from Incutel, then you usually sign some confidentiality agreement saying that you're not working with them. So that's, that's some hard evidence. Now, what this really gets to is, well, why would the United States do this? Why would the United States be working with China? Well, it's, it's in doing the gain-of-function work there specifically. So, you know, I'm going to ask you real quick. 
does China need our money to do research? No, they're richer than we are now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. So what does China need, or what do you think China would need? Well, China loves stealing our stuff, so clearly they don't have it there. (laughs) Well, so what China China had to gain from this relationship with Eagle Health Alliance was the biotechnology. So China was actually years behind the United States in this advanced uh, gain-of-function research. And since it looks or appears and it sounds like, and I believe, that EcoHealth Alliance was involved heavily with the intelligence community, that we were transferring technology to China, biotechnology, for access to their laboratory, which nobody had access to, so we could collect intelligence on it. And why would we want to collect intelligence on it? Just like to see if they're developing bioweapons? Yeah, so this has actually been a problem that was identified after 9-11. So in the 9-11 commission report, one of the major deficiencies uh, noted was that there was lack of human intelligence capability that led to 9-11 in the intelligence community. So uh, if you're looking at all the different threats, bio is a huge part of that pie. This would actually plug one of those holes identified in that report. So you want to have people that are well-connected to these foreign laboratories to, to be able to, to collect, uh, collect intelligence. The sad thing is here, um, it blew up in our face. I mean, I'm not understanding how you could give China a loaded gun in their home base and somehow it doesn't get released. Well, yeah. um, the, the example I like to use, and I think I posted a meme on Twitter to this effect, Imagine that we that we were um, training the Chinese to enrich uranium in the United States, and then we sent a little enriched uranium and the tools back to China, and then they set off a nuclear bomb. Now replaced enriched uranium with COVID nineteen, and that that's actually what happened here. And I think really what it is, it's a lack of regulation and oversight, which which led this and caused this to happen. Um, and that's a whole other discussion of what, what I'd like to see happen here. But I really believe that it needs to be a ban on uh, gain-of-function and dual-use research of concern. So you're saying there, there's no reason to believe that they're not doing this in other countries where they'll they'll share some biotech from American quasi-NGOs, as we say quasi, kind of private, but they're working with government and some of the people might be agents of the government and then they go overseas, share technology, and and let's just say for a moment it has theoretically a beneficial or a you know laudatory sort of motivation behind it that you don't want you want to get ahead of what they're doing, but it's dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous, obviously, you know, because well, it could be released by accident and on purpose. Well, I think this is actually a specific, unique case because the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, is a known uh, bioweapons laboratory by the Chinese military. They have those scientists working in there. And so the concern here is that, you know, Western governments would want to be able to get into that laboratory to collect intelligence to see what's going on. But unless we are creating something or giving something to the Chinese, you know, they're going to know that these are spies are coming here. These people are looking at things. They're not going to give any Western nation access unless they're getting something in, in return. So I do believe that's a unique case. I think a lot of the other programs that the Department of Defense is doing uh, internationally to help build laboratory uh, capacity in especially some third world uh, nations and countries does prevent and help uh, infectious disease transmission. So it's not not necessarily all bad. I do think this is a particularly unique uh, unique case.
Unique case. Do, do you believe there's concern anywhere else that we might be doing this? Any other country that might potentially be an adversary? Well, that, that's an interesting question. So if you were to rank order list all the different countries where um, U.S. government agencies are doing infectious disease surveillance, um, there's going to be a, a range of different potential risk or threat associated with doing work in those places. You know, I think a possible solution to addressing that is that if you had full-time U.S. military uh, armed forces, uh, excuse me, military force, U.S. armed service, uniformed services personnel in those locations working with them 24-7 or other people from U.S. government agencies, I think that would be a good start to at least mitigate the risk in the higher risk countries or places. I don't think that any of this gain-of-function work should be done in academia. I think it needs to stop. Um, universities and academic systems uh, typically do not have the risk mitigation framework in place to properly manage this type of work. Wow. Okay, but 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 what you're describing seems to be a little bit more concerning than that. It's not just a bunch of rogue private people. There is this concern that that our government was involved. Because I want to bring this to the next level. I'm just trying to be innocent here. So. I'm going on based on what the government has said publicly because of, of the ranking Republican member, uh, Congressman Comer from Kentucky, uh, member of Judiciary Committee, House Judiciary Committee. He wrote a letter um, about the the DARPA application of of you know EcoHealth Alliance. He said, "What's up with this? I thought we banned uh, gain of function research." And basically, NIH a couple months ago had a bombshell. They wrote a letter back and they kind of threw EcoHealth under the bus. They said, "Yeah, well, you know, this was not authorized, and this is a problem." So, in my mind, if you know, we had a 9/11 commission trying to get to the bottom of what caused the death of 3,000 people. We have the death of hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people just in America alone, uh, many more people disabled uh, from from this virus, uh, destroyed an entire civilization over it. So if I'm the government, and this was truly just a private actor that went rogue and violated law and went around their back, and he did gain-of-function research, Chinese got a hold of it, Chinese released it, well, I would want to know everything about that guy, and, and, and let's go after Peter Daszak. So I get a guy like you come forward who worked with Peter Daszak per, uh, personally. He was a VP at the organization. You have a lot of documents, information. I would want to sit down and say, hey, Dr. Huff, hey, let's come in. Let's talk about this. We're, let, let's investigate. We need your help. Um, what was the government's reaction to you coming forward? Uh, well, the best part is it's been crickets, and nobody has t- t- accused me of lying or providing uh, misinformation. And I think that that's a key point to make here. Um, I'm I'm astounded, and I think a lot of your listeners are probably astounded too that there hasn't been a formal inv- investigation. And I've actually offered to assist the the minority party of the U.S. House. Uh, select committee on intelligence to assist with the investigation because that's how much I really care about getting uh, to the truth here. I, I think that there's there's this this weird situation where there's a lot of entangling political alliances where neither party wants to dive too too deep into it. I think uh, you know this has become political, unfortunately, but really it's a bipartisan issue. So everyone should be trying to find the truth to the origin of COVID. Uh, no matter how horrible it is, so we can prevent this from ever happening again, because this research is still going on to this day. 
Yep, yep. No, I mean, it is going on. That's why we need to uh, come forward. And by the way, I misspoke there. Uh, yes, Congressman Comer is the ranking member on oversight, not judiciary. Um, and that was, that was you know, the letter correspondence with the NIH. So certainly there was no interest in what you were doing. There was no interest, uh, which, is, which is bizarre. But you're alleging something more sinister than that. You, you're, you're claiming that you believe your home, your computers have been attacked, that you're under surveillance. Did I get that correct? Well, and actually, I think it's lightened up uh, since I was able to uh, restore all my devices, restore the data, and start speaking publicly again. I was actually ready to come forward in late October, um, but there was actually a series of, I believe, uh, non-forced entry break-ins where things went missing, and then eventually a forced uh, entry break-in into my home um, where they've stolen hard drives, thumb drives. Uh, The funny thing is I've got all my data backed up a million places and on a million different devices because as a scientist, if you lose your publications, your work or whatever over your lifetime, that's a huge loss. Um, So what happened was I was able to recover all these things and um, they're probably uh, not too happy about it. Whoever's been doing it specifically, I suspect it's the U S intelligence community, Uh, but here I am and I'm speaking out and and I'm going to keep on pushing this. So you suspect it's the intelligence community, but why would you be an adversary of the U S intelligence community? Why wouldn't they want to bring you in as a friend to get to the bottom of it, assuming they're not involved? Or am well, I answering my I just, own question? Yeah, you're sort of answering your own question, but I can, I can provide the context. Well, I believe that the U.S. intelligence community has actually been providing the cover-up uh, for the U.S. government. It's not actually Dr. Anthony Fauci. Everyone's been trying to pin all the blame for this to Dr. Fauci. But if you look at the documents that, that I've released, uh, the gain-of-function work clearly goes before Anthony Fauci's tenure. Um, and, and if you also look at the funding to Equal Health Alliance, NIH only uh, contributed – 13% of EcoHealth's total budget over time. Most of it came from USAID and the Department of Defense and their sub-agencies. And that was before NIH's involvement. So who would have the pull or the reach with inside the U.S. government to actually coordinate the cover-up? So it, it's very clear that there's, there's been a cover-up going on since uh, late August, early September of 2019 because there's reports and of all sorts of service members from the U.S. and other country, uh, countries, they got sick there. So obviously the Defense Department of Defense picked up on this right away. Now here's a really, really other interesting fact. So in, uh, I want to say it was uh, September of 2019 or 2020, I was contacted by a woman that, that I know for a fact is affiliated with a, uh, a program called Argus Bio, your audience can look that up. And I also know that she's affiliated with the CIA and they're trying to recruit me as a program manager at DARPA. Well, this is one of the most prestigious jobs in national security research and development. And at the time I was an executive at Jewel laboratories and I was making really good money. And I mean, the most money I ever made in my life. And I wasn't really interested in the job. I had two or three conversations with her and you know, I just heard that I was not interested in the position. I believe that the CIA and U.S. intelligence community was trying to recruit me into this position so they could read me into the program so I wouldn't be able to talk because I am the only loose end um, Mm. or person in a position that's able to speak without breaking the law. 
So just to sum up what your concern is, why you're coming forward, you want to get in touch with these senators, go public, is your concern is that more than HHS, NIH, the Fauci's of the world, you're saying your concern is that this was a national security intelligence failure where they were involved in it, and the cover-up is more a cover-up for whether it's DOD or CIA that they were involved in this gain-of-function research and working with the Chinese, and the egg is really on their faces. Yes, and actually, I, have deal, I want to plug Lee Smith's article. It's going to be coming out. He told me this morning that it should be done next week. Um, his editors could be reviewing it this weekend. He's going to go into this in, in great detail for your audience uh, to check that out. So, yes, this is a, the biggest intelligence failure in U.S. history. So think about it. If, if Peter Daszak's working with the CIA, okay, I, and then I, you know, I sense that USAID, the PREDICT program, is in a giant intelligence collection uh, effort from working in it. Um, and I have the documents that were being submitted to IARPA and the InQtel, a.k.a. CIA Venture Capital pitch deck, which, which Peter Daszak gave. I don't know if he received the funding or not. But if you look at the timeline of this event, it definitely looks like they had backing from um, the intelligence community. So if you had your people inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology collecting intelligence, how the heck did the United States not find out about this? About, about the emergence of COVID-19 or the, the Chinese accidentally releasing it. And why didn't the U.S. government tell us, the, the, the people, that something was happening? It was clear to so many professionals in my field. I've heard people yeah. uh, in my field that, that said that they, they found out about this in you know October, November, December of 2019. Yet it looked like the cover-up began on day one. On day one, I, I know I could say, again, this is just one testimony. My father's last trip he ever made to China was mid-September 2019. He said for the first time in years, he's never seen this. They were diverting people into lines and checking their temperatures. Um, he's never seen that. Again, that's just one piece of information. But I think clearly everyone suspects the timeline started earlier than the official timeline. And our government had to have known about it. So, you know, to me, the biggest takeaway from what you're telling me, again, is that if they want to hang out one man to dry, it's Peter Daszak working with Ralph Barrick as the main scientist to develop it. It's a private organization. If that's ultimately where they pin the blame, then they would want to really work with someone like you. Um, If government's not involved, their behavior sure doesn't indicate that. Is, Is that kind of the summation? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that I haven't had, had more phone calls to help or assist. Um, and, and, you know, I do understand that the, at least the elected side of government's all, all in favor of one party right now. But on the other hand, if we want to get to the truth, I'm the perfect person because I worked on the classified side of this. I worked on the academic side of this as an executive at the organization that, that managed the funding. I'm, I'm able to put this all together. And that's I started writing a book about this and I'm calling it the biggest lie in history. Cause that's what this is. And the truth is going to come out one way or another. Um, it'll be slowly leaked over time. If you actually look at the history of lab leaks uh, over the last hundred years, eventually what happens five, six, eight, ten 10 years down the road, someone who works in the laboratory comes clean about what actually happened. And, you know, I suspect that that'll probably happen again. Wow, but it would be better to have an American help out than someone from China, that's for sure. Um, Could you just uh, answer this? 
where is Peter Daszak? And I don't mean like a location. What I'm saying is the last number of years, what's he up to? Have you heard from him? Have you seen any interaction with government? And, and Or is it just kind of a black hole? Well, so Peter and I left left on bad terms. Um, you know, so when I discovered that, that Peter was a pathological liar, uh, he's the kind of person that would scream at his employees across the office. Just all the, these terrible qualities uh, in a person. You know, I made the decision, decision to leave in January of 2019. And uh, so I was brought into Peter Daszak's office for, uh, you know, a surprise evening meeting. And I sort of knew it was going to happen. And you know, he's trying to fire me. But I haven't done anything wrong. I've actually been super successful transforming the organization. And uh, I refuse. And I actually tell him I must sue him for creating a hostile work environment. And uh, through that process, and I negotiate um, leaving the company in 20, excuse me, July of 2016. And I haven't talked to him since. And, I, and actually quitting that company uh, or that organization was one of the happiest days of my life. I didn't uh, maintain uh, relationships with Dr. Billy Koresh. And he and I have been in contact, you know, infrequently over the last few years on publications and in, in areas where we've where we've uh, collaborated. But since I left the organization, I really didn't follow it that closely. Wow. So, I mean, this this is a loose end that needs to be tied up. And, you know, this is something we're going to ask Senator Johnson about tomorrow. Um, you know, whether whether his office and others are going to are going to follow up on this because we need to follow up on every lead. Uh, because we cannot allow them to walk away from this. I know we only scraped the surface, but we're out of time. Dr. Huff, uh, thanks so much for joining us, and definitely keep us updated. We're going to try to get this story out to more people. And uh, just a word to other people, anyone who works in an industry that overlapped and intersected with any of this, um, people need to come forward, and thankfully more are, and this is how the truth is going to come out. Uh, Good luck on your research. God bless, and we'll be in touch. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I know that there's more whistleblowers out there or people who could be whistleblowers. I'm not the only one that knows the truth here. I encourage you to come forward, be strong. Let's get the truth out, get this over with, and make sure this never happens again. Daniel, thank you so much for having me on my first uh, podcast or interview since coming out. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And we're glad you gave me the exclusive. And we hope the big wigs get you on as well because the truth needs to come out. So there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Andrew Huff, a scientist, a veteran of the military, and a man who worked for about a year there, uh, VP of Data and Technology at EcoHealth Alliance with Peter Daszak, the man at the center of this gain-of-function scandal. And I, I would say you you would think every Republican would be jumping to speak to a guy like this and say, hey, what do you know um, what sort of information do we need to look into? Uh, to me, the the biggest takeaway is NIH is trying to throw this guy under the bus. Um, and, you know, the the reality is, when, when I, I mean, Peter Daszak can say, you know, ah, you know, he just uh, illegally did it. And I can see, I could definitely see a day, a time where they might admit, yeah, you know, 
it was gain of function research, but look, we had nothing to do with this. This was a guy, we rejected the proposal and he did it anyway. The problem is, and as we knew this already before, um, you know, Huff came forward, is that this was going on for many years before 2018. And it was clearly created before. And what, what Dr. Huff is trying to explain is that they always create it anyway before they even submit it because they need some sort of research to work off of. So this was going on, and clearly from the preponderance of, of the information he got, what he worked on, and what he dealt with with Dasik himself, it was clear that it, in his mind that Dasik was working for the CIA, and the behavior of the government both before, since, and afterwards certainly would indicate that they're behind it. Um, again, Dr. Huff, he, he's not a fan of Fauci at all, and he thinks he's a, he's a buffoon, but his view and it's just one man's view, but, you know, it's important to hear, man, is that he doesn't think Fauci was necessarily behind it. Um, he thinks it's more kind of the defense intelligence complex that was behind it. That That's the gist of, of, of his statement there. And, again, I mean, that, if anything, it makes it even worse. Um, what exactly are they working on? What other gain of function are they working on? What do we need to know about? The point is we cannot walk away from COVID. We're going to continue some of this conversation tomorrow with Senator Ron Johnson. Let me know your questions, comments, and concerns for him. Um, just email me, dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Again, give this show a five-star rating and a comment on iTunes. It's really helping. I certainly appreciate that. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.